You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Before they were live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are following a secret woven necklace map through the Disney animated canon, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom, hungry for the histories of these movies and how they have shaped us and formed our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today, we're strolling by the sign and tasting the morning like ordinary men as we freely walk through the 35th film in the canon, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Joining me as always is Michael Farmer, a sneaky son of a, uh, 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 this show is on the Christian Humanist Network. Hey, Michael. How's it going, Josh? Uh, it's going, it's going, um, actually, it's going quite well. Um, for listeners who were expecting us to drop last week, um, we're, we're recording a week late and I, I'm in a much better place than I was last <laughs> week. So, um, last week I was, I was stressed to the max, but we've had, one week of school under our belts and something about, you know, just having done a couple classes, um, helps help, help to ease the nerves a little bit. So I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear you were also didn't really want to record last week. Cause as I recall, I looked up and it was like 1030 in the morning on Saturday and I thought, Oh, right. This would be the day we'd normally record. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched the movie yet. Yeah. It was it, it was definitely a blessing to me that that we took a week. I was I was not in a not in a great place emotionally last week. Just just um I I never wanted to be an online teacher and somehow I found myself being an online teacher uh for the second semester in a row here and so You're um, not alone. I, I had I have someone who I know a friend of mine who I know to be an exemplary teacher and they told me today that this was the worst week of teaching they'd ever had. Yeah. The thing that has given me heart, and I, not to over-spiritualize anything, but this has really like worked with me, is I, I said to somebody the other day, like, you know, there's that verse about God being s- strong in our weakness, and so, um, you know, maybe this is going to be the best semester ever, <laughs> just because I feel very, very uh, weak in my teaching right now, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but maybe so. I, I'm... I'm Part of me is really glad I'm not teaching right now. I, I miss teaching all the time, but uh, I, I don't think I would want to be teaching online. Although the college where I taught is not online. They're, they're, uh, they they decided to do in person. Mm. Yeah. So we'll see how long that lasts, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we will. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think about this movie? We should jump in there, I guess. Just uh, maybe, a, maybe an overall thought or something. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I made a prediction about this movie last month. I said that Pocahontas and Hunchback suffer from the same problem, which is they have really dark source material that they try to make a children's movie out of. And I completely stand by that. Like, if they had not been bound to making a movie for the elementary school set, if they could have made this a PG, like, adult cartoon and stuck to the book and not in particular brought in the gargoyle humor... 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think we would think of this as one of the great Disney movies. I think it, it starts off like it's going to be an art movie or something. And unfortunately, it just can't reconcile those two parts of itself, just like Pocahontas. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, it's really pretty good. Um, for most of, most of the running of the, of the movie. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, well, I think it's it's a movie for our time. <laughs> like, it's really, I encourage people, I mean, I always, I, I, I don't know why you're listening to this if you're not revisiting the movies as we go along, but if you didn't watch this one, like, go back and revisit this one. I feel like it's really, uh, for for our day and time, it's, it's, it's really good. And But I agree with you that tonally, it suffers, and they couldn't... Um, you know, I I don't know what decision there's there. I couldn't find very much on this movie as far as like behind the scenes. So you I never know, hear anybody talk about this movie. Period. Like it's yeah. like it never got released. Yeah. So I don't know what happened in the you know in the background, like what the what was going on and in the studio and what tensions there were between like hey we've got to lighten this up and we've got you know. Um, We've got to make toys and yeah. um, and all that sort of stuff. Actually, this Michael, this this movie actually um, is the beginning of some of the things that we uh, you know disregard all the time on this podcast. Like this was the the I think the Gargoyles was the first like spinoff show that they did off of a movie um, that you know like they you know on the Disney Network they started doing the there was a there was a Gargoyles TV show. Um, and then, you know, all the sequels and stuff were, were starting to, like, come around at this time, too. But The Gargoyles is, TV show is rather well regarded, isn't it? Isn't it um, much tonally darker than the Gargoyles sections of this movie? I have never seen an episode. I haven't either. So I, I'm, too, I, I'm too old for all of this. This came out when I was 14. I was past the Disney afternoon era of my life, unfortunately. Yeah, but, yeah, so so there's that side of it, you know, which, which was all birthed in the same milieu i guess i don't know if that's the right word but you know like it's it's all coming out at the same time where they're starting to do the the sequel releases they're starting to do the spin-off television shows definitely i mean even when we were kids it was the you know the happy meals and the burger kings and and uh uh kids meals and stuff that that you know they were trying to get that's that's all part of the machine at this point so they've got to keep it going yeah. um, but they're trying to make movies that aren't exactly fitting in that anymore and um yeah so i i i agree as an adult it would have been a much better movie if they just you know cut the gargoyles and or you know done the gargoyles but done them darker um not dark i mean i don't want a not fun movie but um more serious, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the gargoyles caused most of the tone problems in this. Movie. Yeah. I, I think if you just pulled the gargoyle section, which are not, which are not necessary for the plot of the movie, I think you, you would have a solid a minus movie. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be their best. It wouldn't be as good as beauty and the beast, but like it would be number one, it would be different from everything else they've done. And it would still have some humor, right? I mean, cause there's still some funny stuff with, especially with Phoebus who's played by Kevin Klein, who I think is, really really funny in this movie yeah but yeah, it, i agree it, it's a it's a humor that fits the darkness of the movie much better than the gargoyles do because mm-hmm. i mean lest we forget this is a movie that opens with a clergyman trying to throw a deformed baby down a well yeah well he's not actually a clergyman 
He is what is he? He's, he's like, called a judge, but he's a clergyman in the book, and they yeah. it's it's clear that Disney didn't want to offend religious people, which I mean who can blame them? <laughs> who can blame them? Um, especially especially in nineteen ninety six, that was that this is the height of the uh, anti Disney boycotts, I think. Um, so I, well, I get it was all I get coming around at the same time. Yeah, you're right. And it, and it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't really matter that he's a clergyman or not. He's clearly this like semi religious, semi um, governmental figure throwing a deformed baby down a well. And then it cuts to, uh, you know, the, the first time the gargoyles show up is a few minutes after that, and it's really, really disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and but I mean, I think they could have done. I mean, it's it's silly to think about what they could have done. I, I feel like Quasimodo does need somebody to talk to and to you know kind of. Um, help us understand his internal life but if they had done it more even more like they did with pocahontas with um grandmother willow yeah grandmother willow like grandmother willow is is kind of a goofy funny character as well and i think they were kind of going with that with what's what's the female one laverne is that her name yeah but um yeah uh hugo and um Hugo in particular, um, Jason Alexander, uh, does not belong in this movie. And, no. uh, and it's a shame because it's not, it's not like it's a bad performance from Jason Alexander. And there were a couple places where I really laughed at him. It's just, it doesn't fit with the overall, with the overall tone of this movie. Yeah. It's kind it's of distracting. the, uh, it's, it, I mean, they've been struggling with this ever since, um, what Fox and the Hound, I think is when we first started talking about this, you know, uh-huh. the, uh, whatever those two birds names are i can't even remember them now like they belong in their own movie like they were funny and stuff for what they were doing but they didn't belong in the fox and the hound you know and uh yeah so i guess the gargoyles tv show is a great idea but um they don't belong in this movie right i I wonder if anybody if anybody has done a fan cut of this movie that doesn't have the gargoyle sections (laughs) that would be interesting yeah maybe so uh I don't know if anybody cares enough. That's the that's the problem. Is this this movie did like you said? It's it's like it doesn't exist mm-hmm. in the world. Um, there, I mean, there is some other stuff in there, which which uh, you know, I will I'll talk about. I'm sure as as we go along, I'll reference some of the stuff that I was able to find. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely not one that that seems to resonate with a lot of people for whatever reason. I'm trying to think if I can. If I can think of any references I've heard to it, and it's funny, right? Because um, social media is a buzz with uh, gifts from uh, from Disney movies, quizzes about Disney movies, but you never hear anything about this. And and in in some ways, I think that speaks to the to the way that this movie doesn't fit in with the rest of the canon. It's it's a very atypical movie. It's not really an adventure movie. It, it's not really a romance, or to the degree it's a romance, it's not a romance with the main character of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the general darkness of the movie, of course, uh, it's, it's based not on any kind of story for children, but a very long, um, very famously dark novel from the, from the 19th century. That if you, I've not read the novel, but I've read about it, and I know that the novel is a hundred times darker, even than the darkest parts of this movie. Um, Quasimodo and Esmeralda both die at the end of it. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just, um, it's a, it's a, it's a very unusual movie in the canon. And, and for that, I, I think that's why people don't talk about it as much. And, and maybe that's what made it, 
made it so enjoyable for me to watch it because I thought I understood. I thought I understood what this movie was going to be, and I, in some ways, I did. Right, I predicted it last month, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's so much better and 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 uh, more moving than I had remembered it being. I'd only seen it once as an adult. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it in years and years. So let me throw this at you and see if if you think that this is part of the reason why it's not in our um, zeitgeist right now, even though it seems like a lot of these other, you know, nostalgic things from that era and, and so forth are, as you were saying. Um, so this is from uh, the Claremont Review of Books. It's an article that just came out, um, I don't know, last week maybe. I, re- I read it before I watched the movie, um, and then as soon as I watched the movie, it just connected in my brain. The article is by Angelo M. Code Villa. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name horribly. Um, and the article is called Millenit Millenarian Mobs. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce any words today. Um, but anyway, uh, this is how the article begins. The Americans who confess other people's racism absolve themselves inexpensively by a moral mechanism common to humanity. The more I profess to hate evil, the more I showcase my own goodness. Such mm. confessions, however, have a particular history of tragedy in Christian civilization. Again and again over the centuries, people who have imagined themselves cleansed by ritual confessions have believed themselves elevated above the rest of humanity and hence entitled to oppress or even annihilate those around them. Today's self-purifiers, arms outstretched in supine submission, who then countenance violence against persons, property, and cultural symbols, are mostly unwitting protagonists in yet another chapter of a hoary history. And then uh, from there, she goes – or I'm not sure Angelo is male or female. I don't know. Who goes through um, and kind of goes through this, this history. But the thing that stuck out to me there is this idea of um, – we imagine ourselves cleansed mm-hmm. and so then we can be as evil as we want towards other people which i just feel like wow does that sure uh describe um frollo and every person on the internet right now <laughs> well and i well i was thinking the the mobs in the movie cuz cuz one of the things i found most interesting about the movie is it's, it's kind of ambivalent attitude toward the peasants of paris how quickly they're willing to turn on really anybody if if somebody else makes the first move. They all love Quasimodo, and then the first tomato gets thrown, and all of a sudden they all hate him. Yeah, and, I mean that that feels very much like what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That is a that is a great um, yeah a great illustration. And so I wonder if it's just a little too close for home right now. Like in order to like look at this movie. I think to look at this movie properly, you really have to examine yourself. Like, where are you in the mob? Where are you in, you know, like, Frollo, I think, is a very, um, like, he's the most human villain that we've had, mm-hmm. I think. I don't know. I don't want to say things like that just offhand, but, you know, like, his struggle feels real, although he's obviously horrible. Like, I mean, he's he's also one of the worst villains that we've seen, but there's a there's a relatability to him and what's going on with him that I feel like, um, like we don't want to look at our own sin. Nobody does, you know? But, I mean, look back at the last few movies. We'll skip Pocahontas because it doesn't fit with what I'm talking about. But The Lion King, the villain song is Scar prepping the hyenas to take over. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, the villain song is uh, is Gaston bragging about how great he is. Little Mermaid, the villain song is Ursula, uh, you know, trying to get 
uh, Ariel to sign over her soul. The villain song here is Frollo asking the Virgin Mary to keep him from being sexually attracted to this gypsy woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's crazy, right? Like, uh, and I don't know if it's a better song than Gaston and and Poor Unfortunate Souls, but it's a, it, it it sure is a great song, and it, and it sure is different from everything else we've been talking about. Yeah. <laughs> worlds apart <laughs> and yeah and that i i don't know i just i really appreciate that about this movie that they went for that you know like that they went that that they were willing to go there is is really amazing to me um yeah i'm kind of shocked by it i want to circle back around to that uh, comment you made about the peasants so um the the one thing, the one like bit of really good critique of this movie that I was able to find is actually on YouTube by this uh, YouTube person, Lindsay Ellis, and she does um, uh, video essays. And this this video, crazy, has two million views. I could not believe that when I saw it. I was like, what? Um, because there's like nothing about Hunchback and Notre Dame except for her uh, two million view video. So, um, but anyway, she talks in there about um, the, the this idea that in the novel. Um, Victor Hugo is really um, interested mostly in the building mm-hmm. of Notre Dame, and I've like the building, that. the building itself is is more of a character, I guess. Um, well, the the original novel is just called Notre Dame de Paris. It's not called the hun- the Hunchback is a character, but not the central character. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, and it is like you said, it's very dismissive of of the people you know and i guess one of the purposes for that um is that he was he was trying to show that the building stands while all the people kind of just you know like they're they're coming and going and coming and going um and it really doesn't matter when you get a wicked priest or a wicked like whatever like the building you know is the thing that holds all this history together hmm. um well i like the, that yeah, I, I do too. And so I th- I I um I thought that was really interesting um when you when you mentioned that about the peasants like there's not a very strong uh humanist view of the peasants here. Um but I I think that's that's maybe a little bit of a holdover from the from the novel. Well, they're capable of doing good things, but they're also capable of doing really bad things. They just have to be directed properly. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, part of the problem with this movie is you have their leader is is Frollo who's, you know, evil yeah yeah and, and the worst kind of evil right because he believes himself to be good like you were saying about that claremont article mm-hmm. yeah it really um yeah there's this it's it's the uh when um quasimodo finally confronts him at the end and says you told me the world is cruel and you're the cruel one you know but like every like he's told everyone the world is cruel it's not only quasimodo like he's he's shaped everyone's imagination about what the world is like through his lens of how he views the world Mm -hmm. you know and i i yeah I, i feel like that's really powerful 
because I think that's really true in our lives. You know, like we do, we, we each have our filters that we're viewing the world through and we each have our influence, you know, that, you know, of those around us, our family members or, you know, whatever. Um, your students or your, yeah, your students, your coworkers, like whatever, you know, like however big your personal, you know, influence network is, um, like your, your filters are affecting the way that people, people around you view things, you know? Yeah. You wonder, you wonder how many people you've allied to without even realizing that's what you were doing, you know, about what the world really is mm-hmm. when you were trying to figure things out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And what makes Frollo, I think, a sympathetic character in that sense is that he is, um, you know, and in one hand, at the at the beginning, it mentions that, you know, when he looks up and he sees the eyes of Notre Dame, it's the first time that he's felt any sort of, like, qualms, <laughs> you know, of, in his life. And so, like, that makes him less sympathetic. But then, like you said, the song that he sings, I feel like, you know, who hasn't prayed for a temptation to be removed at some point, you know? Who hasn't, like, sat there and really struggled, Um you know, begging for a temptation to be taken away. And so, uh, and then what happens to you when, um, you know, when, when, I mean, I think as, as humans, like, or just to make it personal, you know, like when you pray really hard for something and something that you believe is in God's will and is good, and then it still fails. Like that's a, that's a real faith shaking time, you know, like you've got to build something out of those pieces. <laughs> That's true. But also the reason it fails is because he's unwilling to do the slightest thing to help, to, to help God and Mary keep him from, uh, from <laughs> blessing after her, right? Like he wants it to stop, but he continues to chase her instead of just letting her go. Yeah, no, it's Ed, that's true. <laughs> I'm not trying to make a defense for him at all, you know. Like, I, uh, yeah, I just I, I, two of the songs in this movie, and there's what seven, eight songs altogether. Two of them are prayers because um, the the Esmeralda song is God, God, is it God help the outcasts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, it might be worthwhile to look at the way that those two prayer songs differ from each other to kind of work out what the theology of this movie is, because I think it's, it's pretty self evidently Disney's most theological movie, most openly theological movie. Oh yeah. It's gotta be, (laughs) I think, I mean, yeah, I really think so. I think that's a great idea. Okay. Yeah. Let's look at, let's look at those two songs a little bit. So the thing that strikes me most um, about God help the outcast is how, tentative it is and and it makes sense because Esmeralda is singing it from an outsider class she's a gypsy they I don't really know what um the the kind of theological grounding of the gypsies is but it's clear that she doesn't feel comfortable in Notre Dame that she doesn't feel comfortable in Catholicism maybe she doesn't even feel comfortable with the Christian God and so she says I don't know if you can hear me or if even there I don't know if you would listen to a gypsy's prayer um, but when she sees God, when she sees this this statue of Mary holding the infant Christ, she recognizes somehow that Christ was an outcast too, and so she she feels this connection to him. It's a very positive thing 
she she starts from uncertainty and out of that she's able to build a positive faith whereas Frollo starts from absolute certainty that he knows what's right and what he should do and he's the right person and he can't build faith out of it and so the song ends up being very negative oh yeah he's definitely I mean uh, he is the parable of the you know the Pharisee and the and the tax collector or it's I guess it's not even a parable it's just the um, yeah, Jesus sees the Jesus, tax collector. Yeah, Jesus sees the tax collector, or he he says the, you know, the the Pharisee is praying, thank thank you God that I'm not like this tax collector, and he he begins with, you know, I'm a righteous man of my virtue, I am justly proud. You know, I'm so much purer than the common vulgar weak licentious crowd. You know, like it's exactly that. Thank you God that I'm not this like this tax collector. Whereas the tax collector's prayer is is only, um, Lord Jesus have mercy, right? Right. Um, well, and there's another layer. Or probably of not Lord Jesus at that point. Sorry, but you know what I mean. It's God have mercy. Um, right. Con- convoluting my prayers, but oh, um, all right. yeah, just just God have mercy. You know. But th- there's another layer of irony there because the the Latin that the choir is singing behind him during that is the the confession. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't speak Latin. I had to look it up. You know, um, I don't go to Latin masses, but it's it's the the personal confession that you make um, during the service. I confess to God Almighty, to Blessed Mary, ever Virgin, to the Blessed Archangel Michael, to the Apostles, to all the saints, and to you, my brothers and sisters. But he's not really confessing anything. Mm-hmm. Instead of instead of saying mea culpa, mea culpa, which is what they they eventually are singing, uh, he's talking about how great he is. Yeah. So he's like he's 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 using all this language and he completely misses the point of all of it. It just goes right over his head. And 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 um Esmeralda speaks none of the language. I'm sure she doesn't know Latin because you know the the mass would have been in Latin then. She probably doesn't even know what they're saying and yet she gets something at the heart of the gospel that Frollo who who has no excuse for not getting it completely misses. Of course, of course, Jesus would sympathize with Esmeralda more than with with Frollo. Of course, he would. <laughs> it's just you, you would have to you would have to be a madman to think otherwise. But Frollo's a madman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, is a madman. And what? A, yeah, just such a, such a both of those songs. I feel like are really just powerful moments in the movie. Um, you know, they both get to this. Uh, you know, just you know, staying on this like parallels. Um, you know, paralleling these two. Um, you know, you get Esmeralda bathed in the light of. Uh, you know, from the rose window uh-huh. um, at the end of the song, and you get. Um, <laughs> Frollo, you know, bathes in the light of hellfire, you know, like, and, uh, yeah, this is very, yeah, the, very, um, very powerful images for sure. She will be mine or she will burn, he says. Yeah. Well, and that's, so that's another interesting parallel there, like, is he is, he's, he's praying a greedy prayer, you know, like, give her to me or, no one can have her basically you know um whereas um she i mean esmeralda's prayer is i ask for nothing i can get by um but please help the outcast so yeah there's a there's another um 
I don't know theological difference there in that this that this movie is maybe you know trying to draw our attention to of of even even the way that we pray because she's surrounded by people uh, the townspeople who are praying the way that Frollo prays mm-hmm. and probably the way that Frollo taught them to pray right I ask for wealth I ask for fame I ask for glory <laughs> to shine on my name. Um, I ask for love I can possess. I mean, it's right there. I ask for love I can possess. And that's exactly his prayer is a possession prayer, right? Like, uh-huh. I want to possess her. I, yeah, I'm, and, I'm just... And, and she doesn't even look down on them. You know, it's not that her song is, oh, I'm so much better than them. It's, it, she, their, their false prayers don't come into her calculation at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then I mean, if they did, she'd be like Frollo, right? Like she would feel justly proud, but she's she's in such a different place that she like she she won't feel justly proud <laughs> because even though none of us would blame her, right? Like, but she's yeah, you. I, I like what you said there. Like it's a completely different calculus. Like it's like it's like it doesn't even. Um, she's, it's her and it's her and the Lord, you know, uh-huh. um, or her and the the church. Or, some, or something. I don't know. Yeah, this this God she doesn't know, and yet who who she clearly she clearly does know on some level, you know. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. though she she hasn't gone through any of the sacraments, even though you know, if you ask her, I'm sure she would say she's not a Christian. Yet, I mean, that's that's the song in this movie that most clearly understands the Christian gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's really unexpected, I have to say, in 1996 to have a song like that. I, I just, I had, I'd had no idea. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the funny thing is, like, I did see this movie as, you know, whatever. Let's see, 96. I was probably 15 or whatever, you know. Like, I saw it as a 15 year old, and maybe I've seen it since, but I did not remember this song at all, even though it's clearly the best part of the movie. Um, yeah, it was, it was just out of my, out of my head. I did remember Hellfire, but I didn't remember this one. Well, the use the use they make of the cathedral in both of those songs is is really remarkable. I mean, they make good use of the cathedral throughout the movie, but you you almost, especially God help the outcast, you almost feel like you're there. Yeah, it's, I and I would love to go there. Have you been there? No, unfortunately, and of course, you know, Lord only knows if I ever will now because it's going to be under construction, probably for right. the rest of my life. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's actually. An, I, I I don't want to move off this topic too quickly. If you have more to say about the uh, the theology in these two songs, but um, I do have something to say about the the, the use of the building here. Yeah, let's, you, let's, you know, let's talk about the building. Okay, so um, so interestingly, and again, I got this out of the same uh, YouTube video um, that I mentioned earlier, but um, apparently, uh, you know, um, when Victor Hugo is writing his novel it's it's near the beginning of like novels existing is that true am, am i am i getting that right i mean no i mean the the novel the the novels it goes back to ancient times really um the the satyricon is probably the first novel and that's like first century rome most people say the first one is uh cervantes uh, uh don quixote which is 16th century so maybe 17th century the kind of golden age, the, new, the 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 real birth of the novel is 18th century, mm-hmm. and, and then the 19th century is the kind of golden age of the novel. Okay. So so I you know Hugo's what this novel's what 1843. Um, 
Yeah, maybe something like that. So it's 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 early. It's an early novel, but it's it's the the form's not being pioneered anymore. Okay. So I misunderstood, or the or this, you know, who can trust YouTube anyway? <laughs> um, but um, anyway, the the idea that I found fascinating was that apparently. Um, within this within the book there's this quote that says uh this will destroy that the book will destroy the edifice and what the what the what the youtube video was bringing out or i should use her name again i shouldn't say it was just a random youtube video um lindsay ellis yes thank you what what a lindsay ellis argued was that um there was the building that taught people their faith for you know and in you know at the time like when when cathedrals were the big thing you know like when they were being built in the in the middle ages and we should get david grubbs on here i guess to tell to really tell us what what, what we're saying wrong here he's 100 um, percent correct about that okay so the, the the buildings are teaching the faith but then uh once uh the printing press comes along and people are illiterate and uh the um you know it's it's books that will do it and so the books destroy the edifice in that way is the way that she interpreted that line anyway i guess that line's a little uh enigmatic maybe like people people interpret it different ways but that's the way that, that's the way that she took the interpretation um and so i think it's really interesting that in the movie she is learning her faith through being in the building yeah yeah well you have, oh, i mean sorry most, that was a very long convoluted way to say that one point <laughs> most non-clergy people at this time would have been um illiterate so you know the, the protestant complaint about um medieval catholics not letting people read the bible most of them the vast majority of them couldn't have read the Bible if they'd wanted to. And so they did. They learned it by hearing it in mass and they learned it through statues and, um, and stained glass windows and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I thought, I thought that was really interesting and I do think that it's, it's powerfully used in the movie. Um, again, not only here, but also in the, you know, the eyes of Notre Dame are always watching you, you know, um, there's, there is a, a sense of the omnipresence of God, even though, you know, just in, in all the different eyes of all the different types of statues, obviously they're not all God, but, um, yeah, there's there's something something in there where the 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 building itself is is teaching even Frollo a lesson, you know. Um, but but also the eyes of Notre Dame mean the cathedral, and Notre Dame means Our Lady. It's referring to Mary. So the idea mm-hmm. is that she she is also watching Frollo. Yeah, you know, it's not just the building. And and the the last shot of the statues when after that line, and he looks at all the statues, which I guess are the real statues. Um, I, it would be really weird if they weren't. The the last one that shows is is Our Lady. It's it's Mary and and the infant Christ staring at him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought the use of the building was really excellent and and appropriate given that the novel. My understanding is Notre Dame um, fell into disrepair during the French Revolution, mm-hmm. and it was the popularity of Notre Dame de Paris, the novel, that um, that led to it being built back up into the form we knew until April 2019. Right. And I think they're going to restore it to that same form. So, um, so the the form we know today, let's say. Yeah. But even the, I think even the fact that we care to restore it, 
I think like Victor Hugo really set off this whole idea of preserving historic buildings. Like mm-hmm. that just it wasn't only. I mean, definitely France has its own like issues and um, you know with with history and you know it's funny like you mentioned like you know i think these are the actual statues which i think they are as well and those are supposed to be the kings of israel um but during the french revolution uh people were were so ignorant of what they were they believed they were kings of france and they actually beheaded all those statues um (laughs) supposedly i don't know i wasn't there obviously but supposedly that's what happened the Um, revolution was fairly anti-clerical too so they might have beheaded them just because they were um they, they were Christian iconography. Yeah, that could be as well. Um, so anyway, the but yeah, it fell into disrepair because it just it wasn't important to people to preserve like these historic um, sites and stuff, and um, and that wasn't only in France, you know, that was you know across the across the globe, I guess until until people started taking notice of oh wow we have which is just an amazing thing to me of. Um, I think it kind of ties into some of the th- some of the themes of this movie too that that you could have something of tremendous beauty and value right in front of you every day and never see it <laughs> you know like just never really look at it or care about it like, did you see the videos of the Parisians after it burned down no they there were I saw these videos of Parisians you know who were overwhelmingly secular um, out in the streets singing hymns. Mm. And I, I, I just, you know, there's something about that. Notre Dame expresses something about French Catholicism and about Catholicism, but also about being French, and it's tied up in those other, in, in those religious expressions. And, uh, you know, who knows a hundred years from now what people will be saying about the lasting effects of that fire on the soul of Catholic France. Mm. I don't know. Maybe that's a uh, maybe that's me being uh, sentimental. <laughs> that was a ve- that was a rough day for me. I don't know how you felt. Like I'm I'm very invested in French Catholicism um, because of the work I do with uh, with Gabriel Marcel, and so like I, I feel very close to French Catholicism, and <clears throat> and watching that symbol of French Catholicism burn uh, during Holy Week, you know, it was, uh, it was it was rough, and and I didn't think about the fact that. This this movie is it's about that cathedral that I had feelings about it. So when I watched this the other night, I, I you know I, I was probably more moved than I otherwise would have been, especially at the end when there's fire engulfing the cathedral. Yeah, yeah. I I, I can't remember what was happening in April of 2019. That feels like 10 million years ago, yeah, it, but it, 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 um, I was shocked to discover it was only last year. Yeah. The thing that I do remember is uh, even at that point, like when uh, Notre Dame is on fire, it felt like, really? Like this is another just <laughs> like yeah. we are in the end times <laughs> like thing happening, you know? And that was, I mean, think about that. That was a year and a half ago. Think about all the crazy things that have happened since. But yeah, I, re- I remember even then it just feeling overwhelming as like another thing. Like, oh my gosh. So yeah but i mean you know that the building was largely spared the fire looked bad and it it did burn things and they're gonna have to they're gonna have to renovate and who knows how long it'll take but on the whole it it, it's still there i remember there's this great story about a 
a pompier, which is what they call their firefighters, a uh, pompier who was also a priest, and he ran into the burning building to retrieve the transubstantiated host from the altar, mm. which is a very um, a very priest pompier thing to do. Yeah, but so I mean, I I think. The thing you said about being that close to it all the time and and not noticing it, I I, I wonder if a lot of French people felt that way after it happened, mm. um, because clearly they as a country rallied around it. Yeah, yeah. And you got to remember, I, I mean, it's right at the heart of Paris. Yeah, it, I mean, I I've not been to Paris, but it mm-hmm. seems like it would have to be just because that's that's how many so many uh, ancient you know, like our, 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 gosh, man, I'm really having a struggle time talking tonight. But like the, you know, old cities are built that way, right? Like they're mm-hmm. built around churches, which is, I think, I think it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad that, that, that we've lost that, uh, um, whatever. But the, yeah, that's the, that's the heart of the city, you know? It's the, or, you know, to use the movie's parlance, it's the, it's the soul, it's the soul of the city, right? The, the bells that toll are the soul of the city, so. All right. Well, what else should we jump? In? Should we continue on music, or should we go go with a character, or what? What else do you want to talk about here? I want to talk about Topsy Turvy Day, about the uh, what is it? The Feast of Fools? Is that what they call it? Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about the Feast of Fools. <laughs> um, I, it it had me thinking of this concept from the literary critic Mikhail Bakhtin called Carnival, and you know, obviously, he doesn't invent the notion of Carnival, but. He he's he's living in totalitarian Russia and he's thinking about the ways that rigid hierarchies and societies kind of contain the seeds of their own inversions, mm-hmm. which is what Topsy Turvy Day is, right? It's 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 all about how this one day a year or a few days a year you have a festival that allows you to take the accepted hierarchies and flip them on their head without fear of really losing them but showing them showing that they're not um that they're not eternal and they're not they're not um well they're not unbreakable and and there's something beautiful about that and something in its way christian about that mm-hmm. yeah because uh yeah, I don't know who coined the term, but I, I feel like it's a it's it's popular one in Christianity right now. You know, like that we belong to the upside down kingdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, like the yeah there there is something very Christian about it. You know, just looking at Christ's life and the way that um, you know he enters the world as as a baby. You know, which we see again in this movie. You know, like in the arms of Mary. Like um, there there is something about the infant Christ. Uh, that he's you know born as an outcast um to to reference that song again like there's yeah there's a lot that's topsy-turvy um about christianity and definitely about yeah overthrowing the um what like the 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 systems of the world that are are not that are falsehoods right that are Mm -hmm. um yeah, that are created in order to what? Just keep people oppressed in a lot of ways, I guess. You know. I mean, I, I I'm conservative enough to believe you have to have hierarchy, but but it, it seems to me that having that release valve 
for for the pressure that the hierarchy sets up is probably a good thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and yeah, it's like I, it's like having a dunking booth for your professors at a at a at a uh, campus carnival, you know. Oh yeah, totally. What's, what's that about? It's what's well, about showing that the hierarchy still stands because if the hierarchy didn't stand, you'd have no reason to want to dunk them. Mm-hmm. But also that it's 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 not as rigid as it seems, and and that's good. Yes. So it makes sense yeah. that Frollo. Uh, is horrified by this carnival because if, if the if the hierarchy's not rigid, he doesn't know who he is anymore. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah I, I agree that <laughs> I mean I'm also pretty conservative, so yeah I, I do think that there is a place for hierarchy, um, but the, I also think that there's a a way in which our world is is uh, is very broken, and so our hierarchies also get broken, and our systems also get broken. You know, well, I, to the point where I don't know what a carnival would even look like in 2020 America because our hierarchy makes no sense. Mm. Do you know? Like everything is so broken already that a carnival is just more anarchy. That like the, the sort of pleasant anarchy of a carnival only makes sense in a relatively stable society. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of car bombs, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a good quote on Wikipedia that speaks to that point. You know, it says the passage of time has considerably obscured modern understandings of the nature and meaning of this celebration, which originated in proper liturgical observance. So, like, there's a yeah, there's a sense that like. You can't understand this because there's nothing, you know, that you you have nothing to, uh, by which to frame it, you know. Right. Well, it's a little bit like Mardi Gras, right? Mardi Gras is another one of these carnival times, and in fact, when you hear the word carnival, usually you're you're thinking of Mardi Gras in uh, Brazil. Yeah. But Mardi Gras only makes sense as a time of kind of wild abandon if it's going to be immediately followed by 40 days of really strict fasting. Yeah. I mean, it must make some sense to some people because obviously it is still being celebrated quite wildly, widely without that, uh, without that forty days after it. But, but it's, I'm, I'm going to suggest at a certain point it stops being carnival and just becomes hedonism. Yeah. Oh, and I think that yeah, that's that's a great point. Like that's yeah, that's that's really good because it, it does it it. Re- it too reverses itself in a way, you know. Like you talked about, the there's the seeds of the undoing in everything. Like that includes in the, you know, like <laughs> not to get too too uh, crazy on it, but you know, like within the seed, there's another seed of its undoing, right? Like right. if you're doing this thing, there's a, there's the it, that the hedonism could grow straight out of that, you know, a little bit the way they present it in this uh, in this um in this movie or maybe it's only presented that way because of the of the fact that that it is obscured to us like like most of us are not living in 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 a place where where a feast of fools makes sense to us so we, we almost our only connection point to it would be some sort of wild hedonism well I, what i was going to say is that the um if, let's say joy is a fruit of the spirit joy is not possible in a world of rigid um hierarchy like the one Frollo wants, right? Where everything's in its right place. People are, are disproportionately punished because they cross lines that they don't even really know they're crossing. It's mm-hmm. not possible there. But it's also not possible in a world of abject hedonism. Like, that's not joy. That's something else. Joy, you need that kind of balance. You need you need the feast and the fast. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I really uh, yeah, that's actually something I've been thinking about <laughs> recently just in my, you know, in my own life and my own theology has been thinking about this idea of feasts and fasts and so yeah, it's very interesting that you put it that way. We started keeping Lent and Advent a few years ago before we even became Catholic and it really um you really appreciate Christmas and Easter more. Like they feel more like feast days when you've you've been giving up things before them and I, I i think that's just kind of psychological good sense that the church understood millennia before psychology was a a human discipline you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I i remember you talked about this a little bit on um uh sectarian review right you, uh, with, with uh yeah i think you did <laughs> didn't danny have you on you and um you guys talked about weird christianity oh yes yeah with ben crosby yeah, with Ben Crosby, and uh, it was it was a really great episode. I I recommend it um, for for people to listen to. But yeah, you you talked about on there like that um, exactly what you're saying. Like there's you know it, it adds meaning to it. And actually, I think I think it was on that episode that you guys talked about that you know it is interesting that within Protestantism, some of these things after you know after uh, however many years of kind of um, abandoning more and more of that stuff, some sort of, uh, you know, romophobia or something <laughs> that seeped into Protestantism, that this like weird Christianity movement, like it, it there's, there, I feel like there's more and more, um, kind of coming back in because I think people recognize, uh, like you said, like that it's, it's, it's bigger than psychology. It's just, you know, there's something, there's something, created in us i think you know like in our human nature that we need the feast and the fast because if you're only ever fasting it doesn't mean anything if you're only ever feasting it doesn't mean anything you know like we need both right and i i and that's why i wonder about frollo in this movie because i don't feel maybe 1996 was different and i don't remember it but i don't feel like there are very many well i mean actually i guess you brought it up at the beginning that there's this kind of new new frolloism but I, I was just thinking American Christianity doesn't seem to me to be overly given to that side. It seems um, it, it seems more likely to deny the, the, the fast part. Hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, there, there are various fundamentalisms that are still joyless, I suppose. I mean, I didn't grow up in fundamentalism, but Victoria is very interested in that stuff, and she tells me about it. And, I mean, there is a kind of joyless quality to it. Yeah, I'm trying to reconcile in my head those two ideas of um, this this new Froloism, as you called it, and the and the denying the fast. I've, I'm not I'm not quite sure how to reconcile that right now, but there may be a way. I think because for Frollo, maybe it's the. Um, it's what his right of purity is. Mm-hmm. Like our right of purity has changed, and so that's why, uh, yeah, <laughs> you don't have to pass necessarily in our right of purity, but Frollo did. <laughs> but the, but Maybe the, that's the the okay. whole carnival thing is opposed to purity, mm-hmm. even if it's just for one day a year, you know. Yeah. It 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 says that purity is not everything. Yeah makes me wish i was still teaching so that if i was teaching bakhtin i could just show them the uh feast of fools se- uh, section of this movie because it um it, it's it's really a pretty good 
uh, demonstration of, of what's going on in this notion of carnival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a very, fun, uh, it's a fun song, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's catchy. I feel like the song, the, the songs in this movie are really good. <laughs> like, I think, I think, um, the, the, oh, what's his name? Uh, Mankin, I know, and then Steven Schwartz. Schwartz, yeah. They, they collaborated on Pocahontas too, but I feel like their collaboration really started to bear a lot of fruit on this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and here again, the, mo- the songs in this movie don't sound like songs from a children's movie. Maybe none of the ones from the Disney Renaissance did, but these really do sound like an adult musical. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, especially Except the guy the... like you. <laughs> I don't know. A guy like you is uh, like very musical theater too, you know, which I feel mm-hmm. like is more of an adult genre for the most part, outside of uh, you know, um, newsies. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I was going to say, especially with the Latin and stuff intermixed with within so many of the songs, it, it does feel very uh, what stayed or something you know like it's just really it's really it's pretty good yeah it's it's a movie that has pretensions to art anyway and and you know like i said i think that stuff is mostly successful what's not successful is when they try to blend it with with the children's movie yeah that part I was curious what you thought about them bringing in the Latin mass stuff into into the songs. Like, is that a uh, is that a okay blending of the sacred and the profane? <laughs> well, I, I I thought they were very respectful of it. I thought they used it to um to to bring forth kind of thematic ideas that uh that corresponded to historic Christian thought on the subject. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think at any point did it feel like they were making fun of the Latin Mass. Oh yeah, certainly not. No, it did. Yeah, I I felt the same, but I'm not as attached to any Mass, you know, sure. as you are. So that's what, that was one of my curiosities. Like well, you as, said, as I think I said in that um, in that sectarian review, I have almost no experience with the Latin Mass. I've been to one, mm-hmm. um, so I, you know, I, I, I I'm not attached to it emotionally. Yeah. Yeah, but this is, as you said, a very like Catholic movie, and I know you're you're um, you're on that. Well, I don't know what you call it. Like, do you, do you still consider it a journey? <laughs> you know, like I know you. You've been received now. now, so yeah. So I, I don't know if you would still call us on it. We're we're baby Catholics now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're a baby Catholic. This is the first kid. episode we've done since our confirmation, so it's kind of appropriate. Yeah. So um, yeah, what other like major major catholic things are you seeing in here i think we've talked about the big ones um which aside just from the setting the 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 prayer to mary in hellfire misguided though it is you know like um catholics pray to mary or they ask mary to pray for them but i say it's misguided because he clearly has no interest in actually um cooperating with with her prayers 
Um, and uh, and then the topsy turvy day, I think, is a very it goes very well with my understanding of medieval Catholicism, which is probably less an understanding of medieval Catholicism and more an understanding of G.K. Chesterton, <laughs> the great medieval cosplayer. Yeah. But I did. I um I watched this. So uh, I was um, at my parents' house for the the evening, and Victoria was here, and I kept texting her and saying, "How did I not know how Catholic this movie was?" <laughs> <laughs> so I think we we should probably say something a little bit about Quasimodo. <laughs> now yeah, that we're we, an hour, we've now that we're an hour into our conversation. <laughs> Like you said, though, he's not really the main character. I mean, he is more the main character in this movie, but not in the, uh, you know, some some of the uh, source material. He's definitely not not as much of a main character. Um, Yeah. Do you have anything interesting to say about him? I was pretty impressed that they made him as grotesque as they did. I I didn't know if they would make him just kind of mildly ugly. I mean, he Uh he is he is genuinely grotesque, and um, they don't shy away from that like the the first time we see him uh we don't see his face but frollo looks at him and is disgusted and the the rest of the movie dares us to look at him and not Uh be disgusted which again i think is a very very christian uh way to present this that this guy's a human being and he has dignity uh no matter what he looks like no matter if he is half formed as his name means uh, this this is a person made in the image of God, and you should look at him, you know. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. the 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 reason we know that Esmeralda is good is because she's able to do that. When even the goat looks away. <laughs> yeah, I didn't <laughs> I didn't remember that the goat looked away, but yeah, yeah, definitely that that um, he's. You know, the saddest thing for me, and or not maybe the saddest, but one, like, there's so many sad things in this movie with Quasimodo, but it's like that he buys, like, he believes it, and why wouldn't he, you know? Like, he believes that he has no dignity, basically, because, um, you know, because of the, because of his appearance. And, like, the thing that they did that I think just shows us exactly how he feels about himself is all these wood carvings that he does of the of the townspeople and he has one of of himself and it is the like it's crude <laughs> you know like he's got a really crude half formed to use his own name you know like little figurine of himself whereas everyone else is beautifully painted and and done up and his isn't even like done being carved yeah that he that he's internalized this yeah it's so sad to me. But again, <laughs> the only person he's ever talked to is is Frollo, I guess. Does he talk to the Archdeacon? I don't know. You kind of hope so. You kind of <laughs> hope there's been some some uh, communication that way. But it's hard to... I mean, that Archdeacon is... is uh, He's great at points, you know? And then at other points, it's, it's hard to know, like, what, he's what exactly he's doing. Yeah, ineffectual. And that, that character is invented for the movie because in the novel, Frollo is the Archdeacon. Yeah. But that, I mean, that that character is clearly the voice of like actual Christian morality in the movie. So you know, I, I, I appreciate that he's in there, especially if you're showing this to kids. Yeah, yeah, he's a bit of the friar tuck. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, 
yeah, and then the other thing is, uh, um, what's what's the guy's name who who plays him? Tom Tom Hulse. Yeah. Hulse. Uh, his when he does like, I feel like he did just a tremendous job. Uh-huh. There's right, so many times in here that he like. You know, he kind of whisper talks uh, <laughs> so perfectly, but when they sing that song, it's uh, it's um, it's actually part of I think it's the beginning of Out There, um, and you know, uh, Frollo's saying, uh, "You are deformed," and he's saying, "I am deformed. You are ugly, and I am ugly." Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, oh my gosh, <laughs> he's just really, oh yeah, just he sings it so well like it's so believable that this guy absolutely believes this stuff yeah, I, mean, I think it says something to the quality of the movie that we we see frollo do some really horrific stuff right he kills that gypsy right on the steps of the church he's gonna throw the baby down the well he burns the house with the people inside it mm-hmm. um, after telling them they had nothing to fear and yet somehow the worst thing he does is convince this guy that he's unlovable that somehow that that cuts deeper than all that other stuff, just because it takes place over the course of two decades. He spends every day telling this poor guy that he, nobody will ever, not not just nobody will ever love you. If people see you, they will kill you because you're a monster. Yeah, yeah. Who's the monster and who's the man? Right. Yeah. Did you think for a minute that um, Esmeralda might fall in love with him instead of Phoebus? Yeah, you know, I kind of hoped for it, um, honestly. Like, I can't say that I didn't. Um, but, yeah, I'll reference uh, Lindsay Ellis one more time. <laughs> Not that she needs it. Like I said, she's got two million views on this video. But I felt like she made a really good argument of if you're putting – I think everybody in the movie is kind of in contrast to Frollo, you know, like as we've been discussing. And if you're putting Quasimodo in, in contrast to Frollo, like – Frollo would never let her go. Like, I mean, that's his whole thing. She'll be mine or be no one's. And so the fact that Quasimodo is okay to be like, yeah, like, I'm going to let you go, even though I love you, mm-hmm. it, it it puts him in strong con- contrast to Frollo. Um, he, I don't he, know. If he loves her enough to work with Phoebus, you know, like they're, they're yeah. friends by the end of this movie. Right. Yeah. And I have no idea if that's the reason they did it or if that's just a, you know, a, uh, uh, whatever uh a different reading of it or whatever but i just yeah i i was i was convinced i was like okay that that makes sense mm-hmm. I, um yeah but i i did kind of wish that they would that 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 romance would have gone instead of the esmeralda phoebus one but phoebus is very funny like you said I, I I don't know. I don't know if I would have wanted them to get together. I like I like the idea that his fulfillment comes in something other than a romantic relationship. Although then you got to say, oh, so the disabled person is the one who doesn't get uh, a romantic relationship. Disabled. Um, I, I, I I don't know if if he would be considered disabled or not. Yeah. He's. Yeah, because in some ways he's he's definitely super powered. <laughs> right. he, he pulls those bells all day. Like every fifteen minutes, yeah. he's yanking on those bells. Right. Big Marie and Little Marie. <laughs> that was another very Catholic part when he was like, "Well, I've got to ring vespers, and then I've got to ring like whatever, and then I've got to ring." Yeah, I don't even know all the names, but um, 
No, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. And but I mean, I think that's one of those things where it's it's impossible. Like, yeah, no matter because you can't tell every story in one story, so you got to pick. Yes, one. yeah, right, exactly. You can't. Yeah, that's a perfect way to say it. And I mean, I think that's the argument for we need more stories like this. <laughs> you know, like, um, because yeah, he is the only one who's you know who's the hero. And so everything has to filter through him. Well, with that in mind, I wonder how how you think about it in terms of, because I know you were on Christian Feminist Podcast a few Halloweens ago to talk about Phantom of the Opera, which is a, a, a movie that shares some of the DNA of this story. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about the way those two compare. Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I haven't revisited that, and it's been, I think, three years since that we did that, or, or, or it was near the beginning when we started this this podcast. I know that I did that, so I don't, I don't know if I have anything intelligent to say about it. Um, but, well, I, what I would say, um, I guess, is that Hunchback gives. Quasimodo a, a dignity that is not available to the Phantom. That when when the Phantom becomes deformed, and I, I'm I'm sure there is a person first uh, term that I should be using instead of that, so I do apologize. Um, but I can't think of what it is. The, the minute that happens to him, he becomes disfigured. Uh, he's a monster. He doesn't have mm-hmm. he, the the, uh, the Quasimodo route is not open to him. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if this is better or worse than Phantom, but I certainly think it's more Christian. Yeah, oh, that's a really good point. And that's I such do a like... weird version of the Phantom story, anyway. The the movie that you guys watched, the Claude Rains Phantom, it's, yeah. it's a weird version of it. It's not very similar to any of the other versions. Yeah, yeah. And what Michael is talking about, for those of you who maybe have no idea, is that we. Every every year, the Christian Humanist podcast does does a series of uh, crossovers, and uh, so the theme that year was Universal Monster movies, and so um, I was I was on the Christian Feminist to talk about that. Uh, that was a fun episode because we not only managed to get you onto one, we also got the CFB longtime editor Elizabeth uh, to to be on that episode. Cause she had written a paper about Phantom. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was I was really excited about that one. So our listeners really should go back and listen to that. It must have been 2018, probably Halloween yeah. 2018. That sounds right. But it, it, another interesting connection there is that you know one of the first uh, film adaptations of of Hunchback, he was uh, the the Hunchback Quasimodo was meant to be one of the Universal monsters. Oh, that's interesting. And I think in the in the in the novel he's much less friendly. I mean he's he's mm-hmm. not what he is here. This this movie softens him. Oh yeah. It's oh, he's a got story. Yeah, I mean he's got a huge heart, you know, right. which is always kind of interesting. I mean we're we're gonna we're gonna revisit this uh, same idea um, with uh, when we get to Tangled, which will be you know two years from now. But like, you know, how does how does someone who is raised by a monster end up being, you know? just completely the biggest heart possible you know mm-hmm. i mean that like it's it is interesting that you know quasimodo um i mean maybe i guess somewhere it must go back to that idea we were talking about earlier the the seed somewhere in um the way that frollo is teaching him there must be a seed of 
of this can't all be right. <laughs> there's there's goodness here somewhere, you know. Then that's the thing that that grows in Quasimodo, like and some you know, impossibly, which you know makes him the the outcast underdog hero, not only because of his uh, deformity or whatever, but because he's able to overcome uh, Frollo and and this. You know, he's able to see the world in a different way. He's got a completely different outlook. Yeah. I think probably if it were real life, the one in the novel would be more likely. Unfortunately. Yeah. But that's why we like our stories, I guess. Right. <laughs> right. That's not the story they're trying to tell. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with them changing the ending or anything like that. As long as... I guess if I were teaching... Uh, the, the novel uh, Notre Dame de Paris I would uh, I would make sure I gave a quiz on the last day to see if people actually read the novel or just watched the movie yeah I want to kind of go back to that idea though for just a minute of you know Quasimodo's big heart um, and that uh, you're right that like his end point isn't a romantic love but he's now been accepted like he's accepted into the community he's got friends uh in esmeralda and uh phoebus and you know he's able to you know <laughs> leave the tower finally um which i think i that's that's all a very you know very happy ending and it also i think it just it 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 ties nicely to his i want song you know like when he's um you know he's singing that song of i i want to know the crowd and they they'll never know me i've been watching them their, my whole life i want to know what it feels like to be out there i want to feel what it's like to be with them it's a very much a um you know in the vein of ariel's i want song you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like what's it like to live on that shore and i i think it's it's fascinating how these movies they seem to keep coming back to this like um appreciate your life <laughs> you know like like he just wants a normal life and then like you know uh we we watch these movies uh, you know and and sometimes or uh, like all movies all stories you know sometimes um to to view a different world you know to 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 join a different world for a little while but part of that shaping of the imagination is like we come back to our own and we come back different you know like we see our own uh world world differently um which i know we've talked about before on here but i just i wanted to to bring it up again because i I really like that idea of i think you i think you're the one who said it like re-enchanting the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know through through watching some of this like we we see the world through quasimodo's eyes and it re-enchants it for us i thought it was interesting they all seem to kind of know who he is yeah, he's not as he's not as secret up there as he thinks he is. Yeah, they, they know there's a they know there's a, a strange being up there that rings the bells, and sometimes they hate him, and sometimes they love him. You know, the crowd is fickle. Yeah. Well, yeah, there is a that interesting undercurrent of um, obviously his his story has been kept by the other gypsies. You know, like all the gypsies were were. Who are who are trying to flee that night, and then his mother gets killed, of course. Um, but the the other ones somehow must have have kept the tale, um, so that uh, you know whatever the the narrator gypsy guy is, he 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 knows it. He can he can sing it during Topsy or at the beginning of the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Clopin is that his name? Yeah, Clopin. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. no, thank you for pronouncing it correctly. 
funny one. He's a funny character because he's like so willing to just like kill Phoebus and um and the hunchback. <laughs> or well, you know? Well he like, seems like he seems like such a, you know, hell hell fellow well met and then as soon as he sees them in the what is it, the Court of Miracles, is that what their lair is called? He Yeah, yeah he he is instantly very threatening. Yeah. The Court of Miracles is that's interesting. So I looked that up just because I was curious about, you know, like is this a real place or whatever? And so apparently it was um, that, you know, beggars earned more if they were somehow, like if they were blind or lame or whatever, like people would give them more money and then when they'd get back home with the quarter miracles, that's that's why they sing that line in there. Like the blind will see, the, the lame will walk <laughs> because they, <laughs> they weren't actually blind or lame. <laughs> so that was a real place? Apparently, yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. All my information comes from Wikipedia and YouTube. I don't know why anybody listens to us. <laughs> well, I don't know. Should we say anything else about Phoebus? He's a pretty major character. Or Esmeralda. I guess we didn't really say much about either of them. But uh, we are- she, She's got to be the sexily, most sexily animated Disney uh, woman ever. Yeah. Scandalous. <laughs> scandalous, that's right. Um, I don't think Demi Moore does a great job. I don't really like Demi Moore. I don't think she's a very good actress. But the character is well written and well yeah. animated. Like the, mm-hmm. the scenes where she's entertaining at the, the fair are, are really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Phoebus is an interesting character because he's um, he's not entirely pleasant. He's not really a hero. He kind of is. He does the right thing when it comes down to it, but he's also pig-headed and and kind of mean. Um, and and Kevin Klein gets all that across very very well. I had forgotten that it was Kevin Klein in that role. He's not somebody I think of as a uh, the lead in an action movie, but he he um, I, th- I thought did a really good job. Yeah. It makes you wonder, like, I mean, at the beginning of the movie when they introduce him, he's like, he's been away 10 years. And so you kind of wonder, like, what's what's he been through that he he's, doesn't just fall in line with everybody else? You know, like, yeah. he's he's seen a world outside of Frollo's also. I don't know if that's how it is in the book, but... but sometimes he does fall in line, right? And then sometimes he... He's, it goes too far for him. Right. Well, yeah, he's fallen in line enough to have reached captain of the guard status you know like that's pretty like he's obviously um yeah he's probably done some stuff (laughs) but he throws the he throws the torch in the in the barrel of water and that's his that's his real Mm -hmm. turning point but you kind of see that from the beginning too you know like you know uh he sticks up for esmeralda at the very beginning gives her money at the very beginning when we first introduced to him so so you know he's a good guy from the from the get go. Well, I think he's he's probably the hierarchical figure that would make more sense with the feast of festival of fools, right? That that he's where the hierarchy bends a little bit in order to remain human. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything else in your notes? 
No, I don't think so. But I really did like this movie, and I would have liked it even more. I mean, we barely talked about them, thank goodness. But uh, it would it, <laughs> it, it could have been a really great movie if they had just left out the gargoyles. Yeah. But it's still it's still a much better movie than I remembered it being. And if our listeners haven't seen it or they haven't seen it in a long time, go back and watch it because it's 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 really very well done for the most part. Yeah, I really liked it. I didn't think I was going to because I kind of had this memory of, I guess I just dismissed it, you know, like which apparently everybody else did because, <laughs> like, like we've mentioned a couple times, it's like this movie doesn't even exist. But um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. And God help the outcasts is worth the price of a mission, right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. So. Yeah, so yeah, that's another thing. None of these songs ever show up in like the sing along videos or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, it's just it really is a forgotten movie. Um, I'm just imagining Hellfire in a sing along video. <laughs> <laughs> They're really maybe just two. I think. Yeah, the the songs in here are too tender or something. Like, I mean, even I mean, we we've talked, we didn't talk about every single one, but like, um, God help the outcast. Like, you kind of can't just sing that, you know. Like, you've got to kind of mean it to even uh-huh. sing. You know, Hellfire. I you know I I joke, but I mean seriously, like, it's not that song is not tender, but like, it's obviously extremely personal. You know, like it's not like a. a I don't know. Right. So Hellfire is not universally applicable. It's obviously a very personal song, d- despite the fact that you're never going to get, you know, um, small children. Well, I mean, I'm sure in some households, in my household, I don't want my girls going, running around singing Hellfire. <laughs> it just doesn't really quite work. And then uh, Out There is the other tremendous song in this in this movie. I, I, I really like Out There, but it begins with this whole thing about the world is cruel. The world is wicked. I am a monster. <laughs> um, you know, like. Uh, it doesn't really turn into a a more sing along happy Disney song until the end of it. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did they turn this one into a Broadway play? Uh, it never reached Broadway. They did. Okay. They did do a a, um, a musical version of it, um, but it it never made it to Broadway. Because I feel like it might um, it might work well that way. Yeah. And they are, of course, doing a live-action version. So, <sighs> <laughs> I got I, I tried to rope you into a debate on Twitter the other day between me and Stephen D. Gradonis, who runs Decent Films. He's like the Catholic film critic. Mm-hmm. He's 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 bright. Um, but <laughs> anyway, he um, he 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 said that there are some good of the some of the live-action remakes are good. Um, and, and his his theory is the ones that uh, the ones that have a Broadway musical aren't good when they make the live action version. Interesting. And why is that? Um, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> he said he said it's like they get there's no more room to improvise. Oh, okay. But having not seen any of the live action movies, and I don't think I've ever seen any of the Broadway. Uh, I, I'm not. I, I can't really. I can't really. Uh, engage with that argument right yeah it's interesting because i'd almost think it'd be the opposite 
Yeah. Just intuitively. But I've also never seen I mean I I've never seen any of the Broadways for sure. I've seen a few of the the live action remakes unfortunately. Um The ones he said are are good are Peach Dragon and Mulan and Cinderella and The Jungle Book. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what I will say about that is that I had this thought today going back to this idea of like the book will destroy the edifice. But the book actually saved the edifice, right? Because the the edifice doesn't serve the same purpose anymore. So it did destroy the edifice in the sense of we don't get our theology from buildings in the same way. Um, And maybe we should still should. And I know that the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, for the most part, their, their meeting places are still designed to help you enter into a space uh, a sacred space whereas um, the the more Protestant churches that I'm familiar with and grew up in definitely are not right like they're very functional buildings and any building can be a church and and whatever and there's a there's a theological truth in there too right like where where God where where God's people are meeting um, God God is there in, in a sense so you know both sides have their their thing. My point here being that um, by writing this book, he he brought Notre Dame into the limelight as a place that people wanted to actually preserve, even though it preserved it in a different way. And so maybe, <laughs> maybe in the uh, the most charitable way that I can be, the some of these live actions will actually save the animation. Like it'll like bring bring them into a place where people are like, oh yeah, I should go revisit that because I haven't seen it in a while. Well, what happened to Peach Dragon? Did people go watch Peach Dragon? Because that was one that I don't think most people had ever seen. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I was just trying to be charitable. I don't know if it's actually played <laughs> out <laughs> in that way at all. <laughs> Fair enough. I've not seen Peach Dragon, the live action or the original. So I hated the original when I was a kid. All right, well, I'm going to close this up unless you have something else you want to throw in here. I don't. Okay. Well, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we are on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and christianhumanist.org. You can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at either beforetheywerelive at gmail.com or you can reach Michael on Twitter at uh, quellbummer and... We want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. We mentioned a couple on this one, uh, Christian Feminist and Sectarian Review, um, and I will link those somewhere sometime. And Michael and I know that there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua Altman-Schofer. Any last words? That's what they all say. (laughs) 